Sam uh, finished up last week uh, with uh, Heyman hanging on the gallows. And he referred to how, you know, in the movies, you know, things happen and he showed you a little clip. And So here we are, chapter 8. Haman is dead, hanging on the gallows. The queen, Esther, she's safe. Mordecai, he's wearing the king's robes. Now in the movies, in the movies, this is where this story would end. You know, you know the baddies are dead, been killed or whatever, you know. The guy gets the girl. You know, even John Wayne, you know, he wasn't really a romantic. He used to get the girl and they'd wander off into the sunset or ride off or drive off, whatever. That's where the movies stop, yeah? But it's only chapter 8 here, isn't it? This is not the movies. And brothers and sisters, Hollywood has done a very big disservice to all of us that live uh, in this, uh, this era. They make life seem everything ends up happily ever after, you know. Long after the wicked people are gone, the consequences of their evil deeds live on and on and on. You know, I was thinking about an example to give to you and I thought of two to illustrate this. You know, after Hitler was defeated, you know, you, you can see pictures of, of, of victory in Europe, VE Day, you know, in, in, you go look it up on Google and all the rest of it, people, you know, in the streets kissing, ticker tape parades, everything was great. The war was over. Amen. Hitler was dead. Good riddance. And you would think that that was it. Everything got back to normal. You know that Germany, the German people suffered for decades and decades and decades after World War II because of the decisions Adolf Hitler took. The country was divided by war. It's only just recently that it's been unified and they're still struggling to to get those people together. Even the victors of World War II, England, who who were on the side of, of, of the victors, they saw off all the, the blitz, they saw off all that. The potential invasion of England. It cost them a lot. In 1946 to 48, the English government had to bring in bread rationing after the war. The war they won. Can you believe that? And for more recent times, Pol Pot. Now we know a lot about him. In, in, in Cambodia, the, the, the Khmer Rouge, the, 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 the genocide there. You know that he killed 25% of the population of Cambodia. Not just any 25%. He, he took particular pains at thinking, uh, who can we get rid of? All the people that didn't like him, all the intellectuals, all the doctors, you know, all the, all the smart people, the teachers the political uh, uh, people, the administrators, all the people that kept the country going and ticking over and they were all gone. Pol Pot's dead. Cambodia's still suffering the consequences of that. Just a couple of recent examples that we're all very familiar with. Wicked people, their influence doesn't die off when they're gone. Things can keep, the consequences keep going on. 
And even today, brothers and sisters, what can we learn about that? I think it's very important that we, we take note about the things that we pass as legislation. The governments that we vote in, very important. Legislation passed today can affect generations, can change the very fabric of society that we know of today or that we used to value a few years back. I'm thinking of things like abortion laws, same-sex marriage, euthanasia. And people say, oh, Raph, but they're not wicked things. Wicked. I looked it up, didn't I? Here's what wicked means. Wicked is evil or morally bad in principle or in practice. It's sinful. It's in the dictionary, right? It's iniquitous, which means it's unjust. So all of a sudden, this word wicked takes on a slightly greater significance in our lives because this is what's happening today here in Australia, Victoria. Governments passing legislation, influencing making changes, a little bit like what happened in Esther. Yeah? Interesting, isn't it? Not a coincidence. I hope you think about that. So we get to chapter 8, verse two, 1 and 2. And so what we see here is not the end, not the happy ending, not the riding off into the sunset, but we see that unless something intervenes... In about eight months or so, the Persians would come, um, the Jews that lived in Persia would come under attack from the, the rest of the, the people in the Persian Empire and will be wiped off off the face of the earth. So that's where we are in this account. <clears throat> Can you just, just go back to chapter 3 just for a moment? I want to read you, in case you've forgotten what that edict was. It's mentioned a few times in the, in the readings that we had, but it's not spelled out. So in, in Esther chapter 3 and verse 10 to 11 down to four, and 14, it says, <clears throat> So the king took his signet ring from the finger and gave it to Hanan the Agite, and uh, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, said the king to Haman, and do with the people as you please. And then in verse 13 it says, Dispatches uh, were sent uh, by the couriers to all the king's provinces with the order, and this is the order of the edict, right? Listen to this. To destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews. Dash, young and old, women and little children. And to plunder their goods. Now that's the edict. To kill and destroy. We sort of know what that means. But what about annihilation? What does that mean? To annihilate means to reduce to to utter ruin or non-existence. Brothers and sisters, do we understand what was being faced by the Jews here in this story? They were going to be attacked and wiped out. Non-existence is what it means. Utterly destroyed. Poor old King Xerxes. I, you know, I, I, when I first started this, uh, introduced this to you, I told you that he wasn't a good bloke. And I guess I gave you a couple of, uh, of uh, words that described him. One of them was inept. Uh, he was inept. He really was. He wasn't a good ruler. And so we have here in chapter 8, um, 
another problem that he's got. He thought he got rid of Haman, hung him on the gallows, took off the ring, all fixed. Oh, no. Inept means without the skill or aptitude for a particular task or assignment. And that describes King Xerxes down to a team, absolutely. Militarily, he was hopeless. Administrative, he was no good at that either. And morally, well, you know, look at the edict, he just allowed to get uh, rubber stamped. He wasn't even aware, he didn't even think through the economic circumstances and, and, and the ramifications of that edict for his, for his empire. We'll get to that in, in a moment. And so, and, and then, you know, as he marries this woman called Esther, he doesn't even realise she's a Jew. And now here he is again. Now he finds out in, in the early chapter, part of uh, chapter 8, that the queen, his wife, and Mordecai are cousins. I'm starting to feel sorry for this bloke, I really am. You know, he just can't, can't take a trick. And so he does, he does a wise thing here. He starts to think about things a bit, I think. He makes Mordecai the PM, second in charge. And that's really, I thought, when I read that, I thought, that's a bit like Joseph. Do you remember Joseph in, in, uh, in, um, in Genesis? Yeah, he was, a, he was in the, the dungeon. First of all, he was in a, he's in, a, in a pit, in a well. Then he was in the dungeon, a slave. And then he was a, a servant. And then he became a, a dream reader. And then, under Pharaoh, the second most powerful person in Egypt. Interesting story. Very interesting parallels. Esther gave Mordecai the assignment, the management of Hanan's estate. In other words, Hanan, who was a very wealthy man, very influential, had lots of property and things and business interests, all the things that he had gained by deceit and scheming and conniving and, and, and you know, wheeling and dealing. And now Mordecai's to look after, to enjoy the benefits of justice. Justice. Some theologians speculate that that Haman's estate that was now being managed by Mordecai actually helped to finance the defence that we read of uh, that the Jews uh, put together um, against this edict. I don't know if that's true or not, but some do speculate that. It wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be doing you any a just, a just service if I just kept on going and painting you a rosy picture. Because in reality, brothers and sisters, it's not always a happy ending for the people that stand up for God. It's not always happy. It doesn't always work out well. I appreciate, where's Chris? Oh, he's not here. I appreciated Chris reminding us about that story. I don't know if you noticed, but when he read that story in Numbers, you know, and then it's the people, what did they, they wanted something, they wanted, they wanted what? They were sorry, they were penitent, but they wanted what? The snakes to be gotten rid of, yeah? That's what they asked for. Did God give them that? No. Did you notice that in the story? Interesting that, isn't it? But you give them a remedy, but he didn't grant their request. It's a bit like my prayer life, you know? I'm blessed by God, I know that, I know that. I'm very blessed by God. And I pray to the Lord every day, ask him for a lot of things, speak to him about a lot of things. He hears my prayers. 
And he answers them. Amen. Praise God for that. Uh, They're not always like the way I'd like them to be answered. But they're always answered right. God, God will write the last chapter. And he's written the last chapter in this book. And he'll write the last chapter in, in your life and in mine. And he's written the last chapter in the Bible, in the history of man. Billy Graham has a famous quote, one of his uh, campaigns. And he, and he said something like this. It's not quite, quite verbatim, but he said, I've read the last page in the Bible and God wins. Sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's not always a happy ending for standing up for the things of God, doing the right thing. We know that. The history tells us that. The Bible is littered with stories that it, uh, it happens. Things don't go as well as we'd like. So we get down to verses 3 to 6, and we see Esther here in another dilemma. Okay, she's done well. She's the queen. She's saved her own life. She saved the life of Mordecai. She's wealthy. She's secure. But it's not enough for Esther, is it? It's not enough. There's more to do. Her people are still in danger. What's the application there for us today? I was thinking about that. Out in, here in the West, in Western society... The church is a bit weak. It's really not having the effect that it should have. Not so in some other places in the world. I wonder if it's because of this attitude. Well, I'm saved. I'm saved. My family's saved. Brilliant. We all pray for that. We all work towards that. I go to a nice church, aircon. Beautiful. Isn't the aircon good <laughs> the last few days? I give offerings. All's good. And so we sit and we're comfortable and we're sort of happy. But brothers and sisters, just like in this story, the people out there, our fellow men and women, they're perishing. They're headed for a lost eternity. I don't know if you can see this in your mind's eye. They are heading to hell. That's where they're going. You know, Brother Andrew said, uh, sometimes we're too polite. Hey, we are. We're too polite. God, when the Lord was here, he warned people that that's what would happen. The Apostle Paul, he warned them. That's love, brothers and sisters. That's love. Loving someone to warn them of the danger, of the peril that they're in. Helping them to see the, the solution, the remedy, the pole with the serpent. That's love. Not being nice. Of course, you could tell them nicely, but it's, you know, it's not being soft and fluffy. And see here, Esther and Mordecai, they acted on what God instructed them or guided them to. They, they responded to the needs. You know, you, you realize, of course, that Esther and Mordecai didn't have the benefit of this book. They didn't know the last page, did they? They didn't know how the story was going to end. Brothers and sisters, they stepped out in faith. They took risks, did they not? Yeah. 
I mean, you read through this, through this story and Esther was in fear of her life. Every time she approached King Xerxes, there was the threat, wasn't it? A real threat that she would be done away with, at the very least, like Queen Vashti was. And Mordecai, Mordecai had a literal, you could, Mordecai could point to him and say, that man Haman, he hates me, he's going to kill me. He had a literal enemy that was seeking to end his life right up until the end. Another quote I came across, I came across this quote, I like to think that it wasn't a coincidence by accident, but when I was looking up the one about Billy Graham, there was a, a Youth for Christ rally many, many years ago in America and the, 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 the service had come, the rally had come to an end and they asked a man called Jacob Stam, who was the US Attorney General at the time, to close in prayer. And, you know, this is what, this is what was, was uh, recorded in, the, in his prayer, the thing that stood out to the person that was uh, jotting things down. And in his prayer he says, Lord, the only thing most of us know about sacrifice is how to spell the word. That's an interesting quote, isn't it? And it's, stu- and it's stuck in this man's mind. You know, you think of a Youth for Christ rally. All the things that you could talk about, all the things you could relate to and, and, and tell people about and highlights that you can remember, this is what stood out. It's a bit like us today, isn't it? It's a little bit worse for us, isn't it? Because we probably can't even spell the word sacrifice without a spell check. Hmm. I know we laugh about that, but think about it. What's it like to really sacrifice? Esther couldn't do everything. She couldn't do everything, could she? When you read this story, you realise she couldn't actually go and fight for her people physically with a sword or a shield and a spear. You know, she couldn't do that. She couldn't really even put together the documentation that we read about here, the second edict. She couldn't do that either herself. But she could do something. Couldn't she? She could do something. Brothers and sisters, I'm thinking about me and you today here at Montmorency. Now, we could have the attitude of, oh, you know, look. I mean, I look out there, and myself included, I look out there, and some of us are really old. Some of us are very young. Some of us over there in the corner are pregnant. Some of us are, are sick. Some of us are tired. Some of us are busy looking after families and businesses and all sorts of things. You know, what can we possibly do here in Australia, in Victoria? What? I and mean, thinking of the the Billy Gra- the Franklin Graham thing that's happening in, in a few weeks, we can't do, we, we we can't fill an, an, an arena or a stadium. What can we possibly? What can I possibly do? I'm, I can't do anything. Can't even do anything in Montmorency. What, what could I possibly do? Esther couldn't do everything, but she could do something. And what she could do, when Mordecai highlighted to her what she could do, she did. I love that. What Mordecai said for Esther that she, you know what? Because I think Esther had a bit of that attitude that we have. Oh, what can I do? I'm a nobody. You know, I can't, I've got no skills. I'm not educated. You know, I didn't go to college. You know. Mordecai says, you know what? Have a look at where you are. 
Have a look at the position that you're in. He highlighted to her what she could do. She had a choice and she could do one of two things. Oh no, I couldn't do that. But praise God, that was not her attitude. She did what she could. And I love that because in Mark chapter 14 verse 8 there's a woman there as well. And the Lord notes something. She breaks an alabaster box and anoints him for his burial. That's what we get on about, you know. We, you know and, and then the people that were watching say, oh, you know, what a waste of money that was. But have a listen to what the Lord said, how he looked at that. You know what it says there? It says she did what she could. I love that. Because there's a lot of things I can't do, brothers and sisters. There's a lot of things I can't do for the Lord. But I'm doing what I can. I'm doing what I can. And I know the Lord appreciates that. And it's the same for you in your life. I want to ask you, are you doing what you can for the Lord? Not the impossible, not to do what I'm doing or the person next to you is doing, but are you doing what you can do? Are you an Esther? No, you don't have to do everything. But the things that you can do, I encourage you to do that. And in Luke chapter 21, verse 4, there's another little event, and the Lord, another one, he takes note. The woman putting, uh, there's people putting bags of gold and coins in the collection plate, you know. A lady chucks in two little, two little copper coins. To the world, it means nothing. Not even worth counting. The Lord looks at that. And and he says, she put in everything she had. That's how the Lord values things. That's the opportunity that you and I have in serving Christ, making him known. The Lord isn't asking for you to do the impossible. wouldn't be just. But he is asking you and me to do what we can. And so we get down to the, the, the second edict, verse 11. The king's edict number two, because we've been told, haven't we, throughout this thing, you can't change the edict of the king of Persia. Once it's said, once it's done, signed, sealed and delivered, it can't be changed. You can't get rid of it. So there's a problem here, isn't there? But, of course, Mordecai and Esther, well, I think it was really Mordecai more than Esther, came up with a, it was a suggestion to the king. How about another edict? And so they did that. And this edict allowed the Jews, and I'd like, to, I'd like to point this out to you, to defend themselves. To defend themselves. And they had, they had many, many months. In fact, they probably had about eight months to prepare to defend themselves against their attackers. I, want, I don't know. I, you know this. You know this. I've told you this, and, I, and, I've, and I've elaborated a bit. I've got a really vivid imagination. I'm thinking, what was happening during these eight months? We're not told. Right, let's, I'm going to tell you this straight away. It's not in the scripture. But what was happening during the eight months? I'm living next to a Jewish family, you know, this is in the day. I'm living next to a Jewish family. I'm noticing the man next door, you know, he's, he's busy, you know, with his mates, Jewish mates, practicing sword fighting skills, you know, thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Down, at, down in Weir Street, down a local area, the blacksmith, he's flat out making shields and swords. And, you know, all the customers, I'm noticing all the customers, they're all the Jews. What's going on? And I'm noticing, you know, down at the local gathering area, you know, that all these Jewish blokes are getting together, uh, organising themselves, talking about things and practising manoeuvres. 
I don't know whether that happened, but I reckon it probably did. Because we read, don't we, that, uh, you know, the rest of the, the empire noticed what was happening, that the Jews were getting ready. You see, the first edict allowed everyone else other than the Jews to just kill any Jew for whatever reason, you know, no, there's no, no ramifications, no recriminations, you just, you don't like him, kill him. And what else? Take whatever he's got. It's yours. And everyone knew about that. And everyone knew about the second edict too. It went out the same way. Same effort was put in. And so they knew. Oh, you know, if I go over there and try to kill him, he has now the right to kill me and he won't get into trouble. I'm starting to reassess my, my position here. Yeah? Can you see that? And I, and I, and I, and I, love, I love this because... You know, it shows you that this is real life. It's not a story, not a fable, not make believe. But this is this, this is logical. This is what would happen. And in spite of the fact of the edict going out and all of the activity that's happening, you know, the Jews are getting ready. We read it says there in chapter nine. And yet, come the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, the month of Adar, it was going to happen anyway. You see, because anti-Semitism was alive and well. It was alive and well there. still alive and well today. You see, there were still thousands and thousands of people in the Persian Empire wanting to kill the Jews, mainly because they hated them, not just disliked them, not because the Jews did anything against them. They just hated them. Some of them were a bit jealous and maybe some were greedy. They, they coveted what the Jews had. But whatever the reason, it was going to happen. But I would like to read you an interesting verse. Chapter 8, before we get into chapter 9, in chapter 8, verse 17, it says there, In every province, in every city where the edict of the king went, there was joy and gladness among the Jews, with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities Became Jews because of the fear, because, because of the, because of fear of the Jews had seized them. You can read that and you can think, oh yeah, you know, they just chickened out. Well, I'd like to point out to you, brothers and sisters, that here is God's grace for all of mankind. I see there God's free will that is granted to mankind. God's gracious gift of free will, our free choice. He's a great God. He deserves to be worshipped and honoured and glorified. He deserves to be served. But he says, if you want to, you choose. We see God's grace here, the ability to choose our own destiny. That's what he gives us. This great God says, Raph, you can live whatever way you like. You choose how you want to live and how you want to end up. Your choice. And it's demonstrated here, isn't it? Because that's what the edict did. It allowed the people to see what was going on, to consider everything and think, you know what, I think I'm side with the Jews now. I'm not going to attack them. I can see it's not a good thing. And brothers and sisters, that free gift choice and that gift of grace is the same today. God gives every individual, all of us, 
Every individual person, irrespective of your age, your race, your intelligence, the right and the ability to choose our own destiny. See, God doesn't choose heaven for you. God doesn't choose hell for you. We choose those things ourselves. In John 3.16 it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's your choice. You choose your own destiny. And historians, getting back to the story here, the historians say that the Persian Empire at this time, at the height of the Persian Empire, there were about 100 million people. That's the population, 100 million people. That's a lot of people. And the historians also say, now I don't know how they worked this out, but I'm just passing on the information, say that up to 20% of that population were Jews. I'm glad it was 100 million because it made it really easy for me to work out how many Jews there were. 20 million! 20 million! Can you believe that? That's, I mean, we're 25 million in Australia. That's almost, like, go back maybe 10 years ago, that's almost the whole of Australia wiped out. All the population, I'm sorry, in Australia wiped out. 20 million. Because remember, it was annihilation they were facing. 20 million. Now, brothers and sisters, do you, do you realise the significance of that? Do you know, and I, I, I'm not being sensitive here, but we, we get very taken up and, and concerned, and, and, and rightly so, about the Holocaust that happened in World War II. They say about six million Jews were exterminated there or killed. It's a terrible thing, and I don't mean to minimise it, but if you think that was bad, imagine 20 million, three times plus, it's hard to get your head around it. It's even hard to get your head around six million. And, uh, and, there, are, and there are still anti-Semites and, and anti-God people who would say, oh, yeah, I see the Jews, they were, they're bullies. They were going to go and kill all these people. They killed all these people. They killed 75,000 in their defence. Now, again, I don't want to be insensitive and I'm not minimising a loss of any life. You know, a loss of any life, one person is, is not a good thing. The 75,000 killed is 0.1% of the entire population, as opposed to 20%. Now, I, I, I'm not saying that one's better than the other, but it just puts things in perspective, doesn't it? And it's important to note the motivation for the Jews was not self, was, was self-defence, it was survival. I'd like you to, to just turn with me again to, to chapter 8. We didn't read this. In verse 11, the king's second edict, it says, the king granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and to protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate any, uh, any armed force of any nationality or province that might attack them and their children, women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. So this is what they were entitled, were given the right to do in self-defence. In in, uh, chapter 9, verses 5, 15 and 16, it shows us that the Jews, when the the attacks came, the Jews, their only motivation was personal safety because we don't read that they killed any uh, any women and children, but we clearly read they didn't take any plunder. They weren't interested in 
gaining from this situation. They just wanted to live, brothers and sisters. They wanted to survive. They wanted to survive. Now, as we finish up, what do we learn from Esther? Is it just a historical? Is that all we've learned in the last seven weeks? Just a historical event. It's a book in the Bible, not often read. God's presence is not overt, but it's there. Uh, when we leave here, is that all we've learned? I hope not. I hope we've learned more than that. There's four things I'd like to perhaps show you that I think that we should take away from. This is what I've, I've taken away from, from our study in, uh, in Esther. The first one is God is always at work to bring about his purposes, always at work, right from the very beginning of Genesis and he will be right to the very end of Revelation, doing it right now in your life and in mine. But what I've learned is it doesn't always work out the way I'd like it to. I'm going to give you some names here. Let's think about it. these are very well known names. Moses. Moses, you're going to lead my people into the promised land. He never got there, did he? Never got there. Joseph. You know? I, 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 we studied Joseph a couple of years ago in our home. It's a great, great, great story, great bloke. But I'm just thinking the things that must have been going through his mind. You know, his brothers killed him, wanted to kill him, put him in a pit. You know, they sold him to us as, as a slave. Forgot about him. He finds himself, you know, a slave and, and then in a dungeon and then, and then, and then he becomes the, the prime minister or the second in charge of Egypt and, and thinking, what, what are you doing, God? What's going on here? But I love that story because there's a little parallel there too. Because when, 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 um, when Jacob came to, to, to confront Joseph, uh, when they met, they met, he says, you know, he says, he says to his dad, he says, I think God intended this all the time. He, he put me here in Egypt during this famine. Does that ring a bell to you? At such a time as this, for, for such a time as this. You know, brothers and sisters, if it hadn't have happened, there would be no Israel. If there was no Israel, no saviour, you and I wouldn't be here this morning. You know? So can you see that? God's purpose is at work, but not always the way we would script it. And what about Saul, King Saul? Even though he was a bad king and, and David was, was you know, destined to become the next king and it was all said and done, he reigned for 40 years. Why not just put David in charge at the start? You know, you know no, I don't know. God said, no, let, let Saul reign for the, for the 40 years. He reigned, Saul reigned almost as long as David. God allowed it. John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ, behold the Lamb of God. You wondered about John. Did you ever wonder whether John the Baptist thought to himself, Oh, I know, I know. I'm going, to, I'm going to introduce the Lord and then I'm going to be put into prison and then beheaded. Everything's good. That's not the story, is it? John the Baptist, he, he was a depressed man. He wasn't sure whether it had worked out like it was supposed to. He sent his, his disciples to the Lord to ask him, is this the way it's supposed to be? And what about the Apostle Paul? And he clearly states that this is not how he thought it was going to be. And the apostles, all the apostles, apart from John, they were all martyred. Can you see? Can you see that it doesn't always work out 
riding off into the sunset with, with the, the leading lady or the leading man. And what about, what about the crucifixion? What about the Lord? If you and I were given the job to script the redemption of mankind, would you have written in Calvary like that? Would you have done it? Would you? No, we wouldn't have written it in like that. Well, the Lord did know it was going to happen. But no one else was aware of it. No one else understood. And I have to be honest, I've said this from the platform a few times. I don't really fully understand why it had to be like that. God always works at bringing about his, own, his purposes. The second thing is God will usually use his people to bring about his purposes. I would say if you look at the scriptures, 90% of the time he uses his people to bring about his purposes. It doesn't matter who you are or where you are, God will use you if you're willing. You're willing to be, to be used to serve him. And he supplies the means and the, and the, and the, and the, whatever it takes, whatever you're lacking to get the job done. The third thing that I learned is that God's promises are yea. Yes in Christ. You know, right from the very start, his promises to Abraham that the Jewish nation will be a blessing to, to all the world, you know, all the nations. God, we can see it here in Esther, we can see it in other parts of the scripture, we can see it right today, that it's still being kept by God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and 20 and 7 and 1, it actually says that all the promises of God are yes, will be kept, will be kept in Christ. And you know, nothing, nothing prevents them from being kept. You know, we see here this opposition from Haman to wipe out the Jews and Satan is working really hard to still do that. But nothing prevents the promises of God being kept. And finally, and I'd like to leave you this, not, not, not with, as an encouragement, but as a part of a reality check. Opposition towards God's people will always be there right up to the end. You know, you, you just have to watch the news and see what's happening to Israel every day. Missiles into, 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 into Egypt, into Israel. There's still people trying to wipe them out. And Christians, there's oppositions to, to, to Christian work everywhere, even in a very tolerant country like Australia. There's opposition. It takes different guises, different forms, but it's there. The Lord himself said, in this world you'll have trouble. That's encouragement, isn't it? He doesn't say, if you follow me, you'll have wealth and power and position, great car. He doesn't say that. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 16:33. There's hatred out there, brothers and sisters. There's hatred for Christ. It's, under, it's, it's, it's almost overt, but it's there under the surface by the laws, the, the, the regulations that are being forced upon us, by the restrictions, the things that we could do 20 years ago we can't do anymore. And we've experienced just the last year, haven't we, with the same-sex marriage debate and legislation. We've experienced it here in Australia. It's not fantasy, is it? There is opposition and enemies. And the Lord said in John 15, verse 18, he says, If the world hates you, strong word, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. We belong to him. They're not going to like us. So as we leave, 
as we move into 2009, as we come to our Vision Sunday next week, who knows, but that you have come to this position, to this job opportunity that you have, this school that you attend to, the relationship that you might be in for such a time as this. God is working. He's working in the world. He's working in people's lives. He's working in Montmorency. And you are where you are as his representative. Hopefully, to be able to do what you can to bring about his purposes. May the Lord bless.